Hope y'all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to the book of Acts. We are going to be in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We are studying through the book of Acts together. Um, The big theme, I guess you could say, is blueprint. I guess you could guess that from the big, huge word blueprint on the TV. Um, You can see that the the way we're kind of looking at it when it says blueprint, understanding God's design for the church, our our mission, the three things we want to accomplish, uh, which I think every church wants to accomplish here at Remedy Specific, is community, mission, and care. If anybody were to ask any of our people, hopefully they would say, like, what's Remedy Church about? If they didn't say community, mission, care, you should let us know because they're fired. Um, but we've been pushing that. I'm just kidding. We've been pushing that, pushing that, pushing that, pushing that. And so um, as we were uh, sculpting that and getting it, I guess, exactly how we wanted it to be, we decided the best thing to do is after we finish um, explaining community mission care, we would go through the book of Acts and we'll just see example of example of example, the first church doing these three things, community mission and care. And so we have been going through the book of Acts now for a little bit. Uh, we're in Acts chapter seven. I'm gonna do a little bit of a review and then we'll pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. You're thinking to yourself, that's pretty crazy. Um, Fudd, are you saying chapter seven, like you're gonna do the whole chapter seven? And, and yeah, I am. And you notice first service is not even here. So I, I did it on time. But we're actually going to do all 60 verses uh, of, of chapter 7 today. So <clears throat> let me give you a little bit of a review. And then we'll, so you know what's going on. I'll pray and we'll, we'll look at chapter 7. If you remember the last couple of weeks when we were in chapter 6, uh, we talked about the Greek-speaking Hellenist widows that weren't receiving their daily portion of food. And so the apostles said, well, uh, the, the, the Jewish um, widows are getting theirs, but the Greek-speaking Jews, Helen, widows aren't. So we need to make sure that we don't get pulled away from the preaching of the word and prayer. So we're going to let you from the congregation pick among seven people that can do that. And they came up, and you can see um, <clears throat> in verse 4 and 5, it says, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And what they said, please the whole gathering and the congregation, that's the full number of the people there, uh, chose these particular men, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and then the other six. Um, what we saw last week, before we got into the, the big speech he's going to give here in chapter 7, um, is some things about Stephen. We see that he's, uh, in verse 5, there, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. We also looked at other things in chapter 8. Really, we saw a lot of characteristics last week about Stephen, just things about Stephen. And then we saw that those are actually the characteristics of Jesus. And so Stephen is Christ-like. And you can see some of those things. He's, in verse 8, Stephen full of grace and power. He's doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was working with the freedmen, you can see in there, verse 9. So there's, there's several kind of different groupings of people. And he being a Greek-speaking Jew um, who was called to help the Greek-speaking widows, very, very smart for them to appoint someone in the minority to serve the, the minority that was being, um, that was being um, neglected in the daily food. So he also wanted to see those freedmen who were part of the Greek-speaking Jews come to Christ. So he goes to their particular synagogues. There's at least different five different synagogues um, from different, the different groupings. And he was going to those particular people. So we see he was a man that lived on mission. And as he went there, he would try to talk about Christ and, and explain to them why Christ was the Savior. Uh, they couldn't, as it said... Um, at the very end of nine, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. This is because he was trying to engage them on, on an academic, intelligent level, helping them see Jesus was the Savior, etc. And then you can even see in verse 10, he was very smart. I mean, extremely smart. The, the, the narrative that we have of Stephen is very brief. But the impact that he has, the footprint that he leaves, in the, especially in the book of Acts, is quite, quite large. Uh, but you can see in verse 10, 
They cannot withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. So they didn't like what he was doing. And then you see a lot of similarities. Luke, um, who wrote the book of Acts, also obviously wrote the book of Luke, is, is putting in chapter 6 and 7 all these little same things, kind of same sounding things that happen at the end of the life of Jesus and the end of the life of Stephen. Um, and so you can see that there's a council, which is actually the very council that uh, had the... Um, the wrong judgment against Jesus. It's the same council. You can see they're mentioned there at the end of verse 12. They brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses. Same thing they did to Jesus. And the main things that they said, the main things that were um, charged against Stephen inaccurately were right there in verse 13. And they set up false witnesses. This man said, who never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple and the law. This guy doesn't understand the temple and the law. We understand the temple and the law because we're, you know, the Old Testament gurus around here. We're, we're the religious people. We're the, the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees, etc. We understand it, but he doesn't. And you can even say, here's what we think he's saying. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. That's the temple. He said Jesus is going to destroy. And regarding to the law, he's going to change what we know as, he says, customs or the law that Moses delivered to us. So those are the two things that he's saying. He's wrong on both accounts and he doesn't have these things. We talked a little bit about it, how Stephen understood it, that he's not gonna break down the actual temple. Jesus was saying that was his body and he's not going to change the customs. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. But in in chapter seven, Stephen's going to give a a lengthy speech um, to them and this lengthy speech is going to be a retort to these accusations that he actually does have a right understanding of the temple and a right understanding of the law. And it's they that don't understand the temple and the law. So chapter seven is that long response that he has to them um, where they brought these horrible charges, very serious charges that he doesn't understand the temple and the law. And he's going to expound to them that he actually does. He's going to defend himself against these charges in chapter seven um, on their accusations, false accusations about the temple and the law. So Let me pray. We'll go into chapter 7. I'm not going to read it all at once. I'm going to actually read it in sections. I'll explain how that's going to work in just a second. But let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we have in your word. Um, I do pray that as we look at a lengthy text, and which certainly can lean on the academic side, that uh, it will not feel professorial. It will not feel like it's a, a class, but it would feel like a sermon. That as we see his defense of his understanding of the temple and the law, uh, that there would be direct applications that we can make, that we can see and understand the goodness of you and who you are, that you're not restricted to one place, that your, your glory resides everywhere and that we can know you and experience you anywhere and that your glory is with us and that we can also just see the great story of the gospel in this particular story, how you have rescued us from slavery to sin, and brought us into the promised land, heaven, to be with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said, chapter seven, Stephen is going to defend himself against these charges, but he's gonna go about it in a pretty peculiar way. So he's gonna do two things. One, defend his understanding of the temple and the law, which is the correct understanding. Um, The Jews had the incorrect understanding. Derek Thomas says this, the Jews came to believe that association with the temple was actually tantamount to membership in God's family. 
they think that they're part of the family of God simply because they're associated with the temple, not because of belief in Christ. Stephen's sermon was designed to show that this was never the case, that just mere association with the temple, which what they had, didn't actually give you, uh, usher you into in the presence of God and certainly didn't give you right relationship with God. It, the temple certainly did have the presence of God, but it was not confined to just the temple. So that's the first thing, first thing he's going to accomplish as he goes throughout this uh, speech is he's going to explain his understanding of the temple of the law. But there's a second thing that he's going to do, and it's, it's subtle throughout. It's very subtle throughout. But what he's going to do the entire time as he goes through this <clears throat> is he's going to indict the listeners of his speech, the, the religious people at the time, indict them, the priests, the elders, the scribes, the council, indict them as being equal to the grumbling, stiff-necked Israelites that always rejected the prophets. So as he tells his story, as he tells his story about how they're rejecting him and rejecting his message, he's going to subtly um, indict them as doing the same thing that all the people did in the Old Testament. So that's what he's going to do. That's the subtle part. The main thing he's trying to do is make his case that he does know the temple and the law. But all along, there's going to be these little subtle hints that the same way the Israelites rejected the priests, I'm sorry, the prophets, you you do the same thing. Now, um, as we're going into this lengthy defense, sometimes you might say to yourself, is defense necessary? Can't we just, you know, forget the always having to define and defend. Can't we just, can we just, you know, do the work? Piper says this, and um, it's not a sermon unless you've, quoted Piper at least three times. So I'm just kidding. That's a joke completely. So you might not even know who Piper is and it's probably better. So here's what, here's what we can say. Is, is, there a def, is there a need for defense? Can't we just ignore it and be good witnesses? Piper says this. In every age, there's the kind of person who tries to minimize the importance of truth defining and truth defending. This controversy by saying it's prayer and worship, evangelism, missions, and dependent on the Holy Spirit. Those things are more important than truth defining and definition and defending. Who has not heard such rejoinders to controversy? So let's stop arguing about the gospel and get out there and share it with the dying world. Or perhaps prayer is more powerful than an argument. Or should we rely on the Holy Spirit? Uh, we, should, we should rely on the Holy Spirit and not our reasoning. Or God wants to be worshipped, not discussed. I love the passion and faith for prayer and evangelism and worship behind those statements. But when they're used to belittle God-defining or God-defending controversy, they bite the hand that feeds them. You can do those things because truth has been defined. You can do those things because truth has been defended. So here, it is necessary. Uh, And and hopefully you'll see how. There won't be any notes on the screen. I know we usually do that. But I don't want to do that this time. I'm just going to give it to you straight out. Here's what's going to happen. He's going to defend his, his thoughts that he actually has the right thoughts on the law and the temple and subtly indict them throughout as they're, they're no different than the grumbling Israelites. But the method that he's going to do that is by highlighting four different epochs of Israel's time or five, four different time periods of Israel's time, explaining to them at these time periods that the Lord's presence was actually present with the people then. And so that's, that's where he gets at that little, that little idea of the temple. We'll get to that in just a second, but you can see the big outline. I want to show it to you real fast. The, the four different major time periods, if you, if you will, of, of Israel's history are, are this. Um, and that's going to that's gonna be his argument throughout. Abraham is in verse 2 through 8. 
That's the patriarchal age of Israel. So that's going to be the first way he's going to address their misunderstanding. And then you can see it. And the second uh, section will be verse 9 to 16. That's Joseph and the, the Egyptian exile time period of Israel. And then the third time period, which is the more lengthy time period, will be from verse 17 down to 43. That's, the, uh, that's Moses and the Exodus and wilderness. Um, and that's more lengthy, understandably, because of the charges that have been leveled at him. You don't understand the law. Well, who is the Old Testament saint known for the law? Moses, very good. See, that's a real simple one. There there was no like hidden agenda there. That was a real easy one. Um, And so he's going to be a little bit more lengthy there, 17 through 43. And then the fourth different time period of Israel that he's going to use in his argumentation is the David Solomon or the monarchy. You can see that in verses 44 through 50. So those are the the four time periods. The the beginning with Abraham, the Joseph period where they, they move over to Egyptian exile, the Moses period where they you know, get, get out of there, the exodus in the wilderness. And finally, the monarchy with David and Solomon. And all he's going to do through, this, through these four different time periods is help them see that he has the right understanding of the temple law and not them. They've charged him. They're ready to kill him for it. They tell him he doesn't know what he's talking about. And they does, this whole Jesus guy doesn't, isn't the, the fulfillment of all the temple and the law and the prophets and all the Old Testament that's been coming forward. And he's going to show them, yes, it is. Now, Let's stop and just, just feel kind of what he's doing. <laughs> because I want you to, to, to feel, some commentators go crazy here. They say, uh, Stephen is so arrogant to people that know this probably better than him to give them the his, history of Israel. Who is he? How condescending is he to go to them and say, you think I have it wrong Oh, scribes and leaders, let me give you the history of Israel. And so they're missing the forest for the trees by saying Stephen's being condescending by giving them a history of Israel. Of course they know it. But Stephen's point is, you're missing the whole point that you're charging me with a misunderstanding of the temple and law. Let me review with you what you presumably think you know, but you don't know at all because I'm going to explain to you how I have the right view of the temple and the law. So... You have to imagine, as he gets into the story, they're automatically like, oh, we know Abraham. Come on. We know Joseph. Don't you think we know these stories? You know them better than you. Let me quote it to you verbatim. Genesis, like they go into it. But you can imagine how they feel. So here we go. Verse 1. We'll do, we'll do it section by section, time period by time period, starting with Abraham, the patriarchal age. Uh, so we're at, verse, we're at verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? Defend yourself, Stephen. Are these things so that you don't understand the law? You're charging uh, these, these things. So he looks at them. Brothers and fathers, hear me. Oh, this is beautiful. The glory of God appeared to our father Ham. So he starts with the glory of God very intentionally. The charge is you don't understand the temple. Their understanding, the temple represents the presence of God. The glory of God is in the temple. So he comes right out of the gate with the glory of God, which we all understand is the manifestation of God himself to man. That's where God resides, is in his glory. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham, not in the temple, when he was in pagan Mesopotamia. Remember that part, guys? So he automatically makes his first case by saying, hey, um, you're restricting the presence of the glory of God into the temple, thinking that if I... Understand the temple, and that's where I 
as, as Derek Thomas said, the Jews came to believe that association with the temple is tantamount with membership in God's family. You're, you're saying that's only where God resides. And if, as long as I'm a member of this temple, then I now am a member of God's family. And you're missing everything. That's not how you're a member of God's family. And you're putting all your stock into the temple. So let me let you understand how you misunderstand the temple. The glory of God appeared to Abraham long time ago before there was a temple or a tent whenever he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and he said, go out from your land and from your kindred go into the land I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans. So he's gonna run through some history there uh, and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God moved him from there into this land in which you're now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised it to give to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. Though he had no child, God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to him. So God appeared to Abraham, not in the temple, but Mesopotamia, indicating that God does not, doesn't just live or reside only in the temple. He is vast. He is huge. He is expansive. And he lives anywhere and everywhere he wants to. Stephen's wanting to show them, you've misunderstood the temple. And then he keeps going in verse 6, and he uses the word sojourner. This is the proper way to understand. Abraham was a sojourner. Stephen was a sojourner. You and I are sojourners. This is not our home, and we don't bank everything that the presence of God is in this temporary temple. Instead, we realize that we're just sojourners traveling through this short little temporal space before we finally get to the actual place where God resides, which he tells us, by the way, in verse 49, heaven is my throne. That's where he resides. That's his true place. The earth is my footstool. Heaven is my throne. And so he's helping them see you're just a sojourner. For the first century Jews, a good relationship with God was based on external things, being a member of the temple. And he's trying to help them see, you're a sojourner. You're a pilgrim. Like Abraham, who's just passing through Canaan to the promised land. We're just passing through this country, this world that we live in, onto our place, heaven. And further, God's not limited to one particular place. The whole world is where he resides. The, his glory is everywhere. Stephen's point was trying to prove to them that God's presence had never been just limited to a zip code but it's everywhere God's presence is everywhere so you have the temple wrong thinking that's where God's limited actually he was in pagan Mesopotamia that's not a temple so he's he's coming back with them helping them see that and he's helping them see also that membership of the temple isn't what makes you a part of God's family instead it's the covenant He gets on, as he says that to us in just a second, verse seven, but I will judge the nation that they will serve and God said said God, and after that you will come out and worship me in this place. That would be the promised land. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So the covenant in the Old Testament was what made them the members of the people of God. In the New Testament, it's the new covenant, um, circumcision of the heart through faith in Christ. That's what makes you a member of the family of God, not being in the temple, you misunderstood it completely. And as you keep going, it says, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob. And here it is, Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was his favorite. Joseph had the coat of many colors. We know that Joseph was a favorite. And those particular sons of Jacob are called the patriarchs. So that's the first argument he's made. Abraham dwelt with the presence of God, not in the temple, but in pagan Mesopotamia, brothers. And he's gonna move over. Let me, keep, let me keep you going in history. 
moves over to um, Joseph. And <clears throat> this is where he's going to start making his, his subtle accusations. And the patriarchs, who are supposed to be awesome men of God. We just talked about they're Jacob's sons, the patriarchs. The awesome men of God. You know, those awesome men of God who you think you're just like, guess what they did? Jealous of Joseph. Sold him into Egypt. They brought him, as it says in verse 10, afflictions. That's what you're doing to Stephen. That's what you're doing to Stephen, guys. Like, he's subtly going to start, all throughout this he's going to do it, but he's saying, you're acting the same way. We'll get to that in a second. But this is what he says about Joseph. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. Now, in these seven short verses, Luke is going to go out of his way, quoting Stephen, to make sure he says Egypt six times. So, God's presence is in Mesopotamia. You know where else God's presence is? Not just the temple. It's in Egypt. Is Egypt the promised land? Nowhere close. Watch this. Joseph sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. God's presence was with him. Where? Not, not the temple. Egypt. And watch this. And rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all of his household. Now there's a famine throughout. Where? Egypt. <laughs> and Canaan and great affliction. And when the fathers could find no food but when Jacob heard there was grain and where Egypt there's one more over in verse 15 but he's he's over and over helping them see you have a misunderstanding of the temple God's presence wasn't just with Abraham and Mesopotamia God's presence was with Joseph he was there when the brothers brought the affliction like you're doing to Stephen and God was with him in Egypt so we don't want to miss out on the the jealous persecution of the patriarchs which are very similar to these people that are um, persecuting Stephen. We'll keep going. On the second visit, he, he's, he's weaving in the story too. So we're just looking at the history, verse 13. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Y'all know the story, likely, if you read Genesis 38 through 50. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob also went down to where? Egypt. And he died, <clears throat> he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamer in Shechem. So that's the second time period. Now he's going to go to the third time period. He's going to go to Moses. The lengthier section, no doubt. But, um, and the reason why, again, is because the, the accusations that had been made against him were in regard to the law and Moses. And Stephen wants them to understand that he has an immense respect for the law, an immense respect for Moses. And as he's talking about Moses, just, just a side note, he's going to refer to Moses kind of to think about in three portions of 40. You know, the first 40 for Moses years, the second 40 for Moses, and the third 40. And that's how he's going to, right way, the Bible does this, but that's how he's going to refer to Moses' life here. So, um, <coughs> excuse me, verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. And at this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in their father's house. And at this time, they're like, do you not think we know these stories? <laughs> we know the stories. Anyway, verse 21. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh... Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. By the way, um, that's the same thing that it says of Jesus in Luke 24, 19. Verse 23. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart, as he grew up as an Egyptian, it came into his heart, because he's also an Israelite, um, 
to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. So he's walking through the streets. He sees one of the Israelites being wrong. He steps in uh, and stops the Egyptian from doing it. And there gets a little ruckus up, you know, and then so he strikes down the Egyptian. And that's, that's kind of the story. Now, verse 25 is quite a remarkable verse because verse 25 is, is a total like double verse. It, it's being used to describe what happened in that particular moment after, after Moses struck down the Egyptian and he says Moses was going to bring salvation. But if we were to just lift verse 25 out and stick it over here with Stephen as he's talking to them, verse 25 could be used as Stephen is talking to say, hey, this is what's happening right now with, with you. So watch this kind of double meaning of verse 25. He supposed, Moses, that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. I mean, can you see it? Stephen supposed that his brothers, those who were Jewish, would understand that God was giving them or speaking to them the words of salvation by his mouth, but they did not understand. It's, it's a total uh, metaphor, if you will, of how, of how they are rejecting him. Just like the patriarchs rejected Joseph and brought him affliction, here he's doing the same thing. He's trying to explain to them, Jesus is the way that you can be saved, but they're going to reject it completely. Verse 26 Going back to Moses, and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them. Men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? So this time, Israelites are fighting. He's like, stop, your brothers. And this is what one of them says. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me like did the, Egypt, the Egyptian yesterday? So this guy saw Moses kill the Egyptian. And of course, you know, the most rational thing when you hear that kind of thing is, I'm going to go run away and change my life for 40 years, you know gone. So Moses flees. Uh, And at this retort, Moses fled. And for the second 40, uh, he went to exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So 40 to 80, he just lives over there, has his own life. It's 80 years old whenever he comes and leads the people. I mean, think of that. Like he's a pretty strong dude at 80 to 120 leading the people to the promised land. I want to be that when I won't be, but I want to be that whenever I'm 80. Anyway, so now um, he's going into where Verse 30 through 33, uh, this isn't just kind of the best argument he makes about Moses because we've seen Abraham and we've seen Joseph and now we're seeing Moses. This isn't just like the best argument about Moses. As he gets to verse 33, it's really the thesis of his entire speech. Verse 33 is like, this is my whole point I'm trying to make. Maybe you didn't catch it when I mentioned Abraham. Maybe you didn't catch it when I mentioned Joseph, but I'm just gonna be as plain as I can be right here. So of all the stories to pick of Moses, we're talking about the presence of God being in unexpected places. Which story do you think he goes to? Right, the burning bush. Exactly. Verse 30. I'll help you a little bit. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness. So we talked about pagan Mesopotamia. We talked about Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. Now he's going to say, by the way, in the middle of nowhere wilderness desert of Mount Sinai, guess what appeared? The glory of God. Not restricted to a temple. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a fire of a bush. You know this story, I'm sure. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look and there came the voice of the Lord. I am, that's the, the Hebrew word Yahweh representing I am who I am. I, that's the way he said who he was in, in uh, Exodus 2.14, I think it is. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses trembled and dare not look. Then the Lord said to them, take off your feet, your sandals from your feet. Here it is. Here's the thesis right here. Second half of 33. For the place where you are standing 
is holy ground. Do you get it yet? God's not restricted to the temple as the only holy place. In the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, the Lord appears, and guess what that place is now? The presence of God, and that place is holy. What Moses is trying to say is this, after he hits him with a thesis statement. Wherever God is, and he's not just restricted to a zip code temple, that's the place that's holy. That's the place that his presence is. That's the place that we want to be. That's whenever you're his child and you've trusted him, that's how you know that you're in right relationship. You're not putting your hope in the temple and now I'm a member of the family of God. Instead, because I put my faith in Christ, I get to experience the presence of God wherever he is, pagan Mesopotamia, Egypt, or um, the, the middle of nowhere in the Mount Sinai or Rock Hill in the CPC. Because we trust in Christ, we get to experience the presence of God. So Stephen's teaching them that when he's quoting Jesus as he did, saying, I'm gonna destroy the temple in three days and tear it, rebuild it in three days, that's, that's not blasphemy. Instead, the temple, uh, you have a wrong understanding, thinking the temple and the presence of God are tied together exclusively. And that's the only place God's presence can be. And you've got it wrong. That's not where it is. And then he's going to turn a corner here after he hits them with verses 33, his, his thesis statement. And he says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their groaning and I've come to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. <clears throat> so God tells Moses, the people are in slavery. I'm gonna send you over there. And the reason why I'm sending you over there is because I want you to be their deliverer out of the bondage of slavery to Egypt. Now, verses 35, really 34 and 35 through 37, get into Stephen presenting what is a clear gospel presentation to them. So this isn't just for them, it's for us as well. This is a a picture of an Old Testament story which demonstrates to us a picture of a New Testament truth of how we have been saved from the gospel, by the gospel. Verse 35, Moses was sent over to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, who's made you the ruler and judge? This man that God has sent to be ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him. This man who led them out performing signs and wonders in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in wilderness for 40 years. So this man, Moses, went over, over here is always where the, the, the Savior is in Egypt. He, he goes over there and he performs signs and wonders and he takes them out of uh, slavery, bondage, brings them through the trial, the 40 years, their life, and eventually, if you couple Joshua in there, brings them into what would be the promised land. And this is the this is a Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth of what has happened for us. Jesus is the truer and better Moses, where he comes and takes us in our slavery to sin and pulls us out as, our, as the ruler, as the judge, as the redeemer, as the deliverer, takes us out of slavery, brings us through the 40 years or whatever life you have in Christ through sanctification and eventually brings you in because he's the Moses and the Joshua, the salvation, and brings us into the promised land, heaven, to be with him forever. This is the gospel. And he helps them see the gospel. Christ is this man. And he tells them straight out in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, um, saying, who made, uh, who made you ruler and redeemer? This man, God has sent both ruler and redeemer by the hand. Uh, let, let me back up. This Moses whom they rejected said, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God has sent both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel 
Wait, I'm sorry, it was verse 37, not 35. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him out of the bush, this man led them out of performing signs and wonders in Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 37, sorry. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. There's gonna be one day someone greater than me that's going to do the same thing. He's quoting Deuteronomy 18, 15 and following. I wanna read that to you. You don't have to flip. But in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and following, um, this is what it says. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of my Lord, my God, or see this great fire anymore lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. And from among their brothers, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. So an Old Testament word of prophecy that one day there would be one, the truer and greater Moses, Jesus Christ, who does do the exact same thing, but leads them out of not a physical slavery, but slavery to sin. And so Stephen's there preaching the gospel to them. And he says that the true, in essence, he's helping them see that this true and greater Moses or this prophet that's been raised up is Jesus. Verse 38, this is the one who is in the congregation. That, that's the word ecclesia. That's the, that's the word church for us in the New Testament. In the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received, notice the words here. I'm gonna come back to this in a little bit. But the, the reverence that Stephen uses whenever he talks about the law. Remember he had a bad understanding of the law. Notice the reverence that he uses. The living oracles. Moses received the living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey them. By the way, that's what you're doing. Our fathers didn't obey the law. That's what you're doing. You're just like them. You don't know to obey the law. We'll get to that in a second. He says that in verse 53. Um, so the father, they, they refused to obey the law, but, trust, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, we don't want to leave slavery in Egypt. We don't want to follow Moses and be delivered. Aaron, Would you just make us a golden calf that we can worship rather than Yahweh, who's the true God? We want to worship this created, weird, golden, small cow. That's what we want. And so it says that in verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside in their hearts. Verse 40, sorry, saying to Aaron, make for us uh, gods who will go before us as Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what's become of him. We don't want to follow Moses. Well, he seems crazy. We want you, Aaron. And then what they do in verse 41? They made a calf in those days and they offered a sacrifice um, to the idol and rejoicing, verse 41, this is key, rejoicing in the works of their hands. They created something that for them they wanted to worship because they thought that made them right with God and they rejoiced in what their hands made because they thought that was where they could be with God. That sounds kind of familiar. They built a temple and they thought being associated with the temple was what made them have the right relationship with God. And because they were associated membership with the temple, they thought they were right with God. And we're gonna get to that in verse 48. I mean, Stephen's gonna blow them up in verse 48, thinking that you you think that you can create a little house for God. God doesn't reside in houses. Who are you? That's, I'm getting ahead of myself with the David and Solomon part. So um, then what Stephen does In verse 42, he says, that's not what God wanted. Verse 42, God turned away and gave them over to worship of hosts of heaven as it is written. So here's basically what Stephen's doing. 
Stephen's over here in the New Testament. This is the New Testament side of the stage. Way over there is the golden calf worshiping part. And in the middle um, is about a, a few hundred years later, there's this guy named Amos who's writing and he's looking back at what happened. And he's like, God didn't like that. That was no good. And so what he's doing is Stephen rightly interprets Amos by saying, um, you, you remember Amos, whenever he was writing about that, he's saying, Amos is saying that was wrong. So that's what's happening here. It says, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Stephen says, Amos says about that, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years of wilderness, O house of Israel? When you did that, this is what you did. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan. That's bad. That's not good stuff. That's bad. That's worshiping false gods. And so he's saying, just like they did, and the, the, the Israelites who are listening to Stephen understood Amos' interpretation. They knew that that was wrong. And he's looking at them and he's saying, just like the Israelites were wrong and were worshiping false gods back then, guess what you're doing right now? You who are hearing Stephen's speech, you're the same as them. You're doing the same thing. Images that you made to worship, I will send you into exile into Babylon. So he helps them see, again, subtly, that they're no different. He moves into the last one in verse 44. So um, you may know this, but you may not. The tent or the tabernacle used to represent for them in the Old Testament the presence of God, where they would go and they would reside. But it was, it was, it was transportable. It's kind of like, like an RV, if you will. <laughs> you can move around, right? And David, whenever, whenever uh, he became king of Israel, so we moved along in history. They finally did get out of there, and they, they're in the promised land. And they, we need a king, and they, you know, they went to the whole Saul debacle. And finally you have the David Solomon, where they actually had a king, where all 12 tribes were united. After that, it just it was split and it was done. There's only like one good period, one little small period of monarchy where David and Solomon had it together. Well, well David looks around, he's fought all the battles and he's, he's a mighty man. The Lord loved him. He did have his faults, no doubt. But the Lord's looking around, and he's looking at the tent, the tabernacle, the RV, if you will. And he's like, I live in a house, like a pretty nice one. And God is like out there in the RV. God, um, I don't think that's right you should have something better than what I have. I mean, you're God and I'm David, and rightly so. I wanna build you a temple. And God's like, well, you've killed a lot of people, so you won't, that's good that you wanna do that, and I'm glad that you wanna do that, but you won't get to do it. Your son Solomon will get to do it. So Solomon will build for me a house. Like, what I deserve, what you say I deserve, I, I'll, I'll be in that. But your son Solomon's gonna get to do it. So that's what we're in right now in the point of history. <laughs> this is awesome. Because finally, whenever uh, Stephen's going to make this case about the temple and where the presence of God dwells in the temple, you would think as he gets down, they're going to be like, yeah, you're making our, our case for us now, Stephen. But watch how he blows them up. This is awesome. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent or the tabernacle, the, the RV, if you will, that traveled around in the wilderness just as he spoke with Moses, directed him. He would be able to go in there and be with God according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought that little thing with Joshua to... Uh, when they dispossessed the nations and God drove them out before our fathers. So it wasn't until the day, uh, days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Like, God, we want you out of the tent. We want you in a house or a temple, as it says in verse 47. But it was Solomon, not David, who built the house or the temple for him. So we get to that place at verse 47 and you can hear them saying, finally, you're making our point for us, Stephen. Exactly, the temple. That's what we mean. The place that God resides, exactly. And then Stephen goes into verse 48 and he's just like, 
but you still don't understand the temple. Blows them up with 48. Yet, you're thinking like 41, rejoicing in the works of our hands. Look what we've made and we've confined God in. And here he is finally. Yet, verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. You're rejoicing in what you created and thinking that we've now finally got him. Here it is. And he's like, you still don't understand the temple because heaven's my throne The earth is my footstool. I'm far greater than just a temple. So you're trying to confine me. You're like, yeah, God's presence in the temple. And he's like, you still got that wrong. God's presence isn't just in the temple. God's presence is everywhere. So you've still misunderstood the temple because you don't understand his presence. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? Now, if we get to this point in, in the sermon, the speech, I should say, um, he's, he's made his case one by one, helping them see that <clears throat> they've misunderstood over and over the temple. As a matter of fact, when we get to the, to the temple versus, uh, the, the tent versus temple, John Piper says uh, regarding the Israelites and even the scribes and Pharisees, the root of evil in all of Israel was that they derived their joy, their fulfillment, their meaning, their sense of significance from what they could achieve with their own hands. Verse 41, they rejoiced in the work of their hands. They wanted a kind of God and a kind of worship in which they could demonstrate their own power, their own wisdom, their own righteousness and their own morality and their own religious zeal. They got their joy from what they could achieve and not from God, especially from a God so free and so great and so sovereign and so self-sufficient and so not contained to just a temple. I shouldn't add to Piper, but that's what he's saying. That he gets all the credit for everything. God gets all the credit for everything good. And he won't let himself be controlled by anybody's man-made temple or restricted in presence to just that. And so you've misunderstood the whole thing. You've misunderstood the temple completely. Now, he also, as he's explained the temple, Briefly, I'm going to show it to you really fast, helps them understand that they have a misunderstanding of the law. So looking back, here's how he does that. Um, Stephen wants to explain that he actually upholds and loves God's law more than they do, and rightly so. He he does it in the speech as he refers to the law. In verse 30, as he says, the reverence of calling it living oracles. In verse 25, he says that they don't understand. If they just would understand that he's bringing them salvation, they don't understand God's word in the law, but he does. He hints to them, as in verse 35, that He's the one that has it, uh, that they rejected it, but he's the one that has it. Verse 39, they've turned aside away from it like the forefathers did. In verse 43, that they've actually taken up the tent of Moloch and Raphan, trying to understand that they've constructed it, that he actually understands God's word. And even in verse 48, you're saying, you're trusting in what you built with your hands that gives you right relationship with God, and God's not restricted to that. So you actually have the misunderstanding of God's word, the law, and I have the right understanding. So when we get to this point, you can already guess that they're mad, right? They perhaps have gotten the point. You've understood. I've given you a history lesson of which you're supposed to be well-versed and shown to you that you have a wrong understanding of both the law and the temple. Now what he's going to do, so he's, he's kind of taken the knife, if you will, or perhaps the sword, and plunged it in. What he's going to do in verses 51 through 53 is like when he plunged it in, go, ugh, ugh. Uh, 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 like over and over and over. He's going to turn the big sword like seven times. Watch what he does. This is, this is astounding what he does. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. This is 
the same word Moses used over and over and over to refer to the people of Israel as they rebelled against the prophets because they were continually in sin. So he uses the epitaph, the familiar word to say, you're just like the stiff-necked people of Israel. Turn the sword. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. I mean, could there be a worse thing to say to the prideful people that boast about themselves being the people of circumcision? That they are the people of God because they're men of the circumcision and keeping the law to tell them the people of the circumcised. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Turns it even again. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the rules of marriage counseling is never use the word always and never. (laughs) And here he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Turns the sword again. And this is where it just gets body slam time. As your fathers so As your fathers did, so do you. You're just like them. And here it is. Which of the prophets did your fathers, I'm sorry, which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And the line of the history of Israel, when the prophet would come and say, thus says the Lord, this is what you should do. We don't like that you're telling us what God wants. We want to sin. Kill you, prophet. Go to the next one. Thus says the Lord, this is what we should, you should do. We don't like that you're telling us what God says. Kill you, prophet. I mean, over and over and over. And he's standing before them and he's saying, you're just like them. Which one of your fathers did they not kill? Prophets did they not kill? Helping them see you're just like the stiff-necked ones that always rebelled against the Lord, just like you are right here. Rebelling against my, my words from the Lord. Turn it again. And they killed those who announced beforehand, oh my goodness, you, the coming of the righteous one whom you have betrayed and murdered. And this is a massive, this is like six twists of the sword. You killed God. When you killed Jesus, you killed God. That's pretty big. And then just to top it off, kind of the cherry on top of the big Sunday. Not as big, but still, you've, you've said I haven't kept the law which let's just all realize, law keeping for them, it was everything. I mean, they had these phylacteries that they would carry out these big boxes. Like the bigger the box, the more law keeper they are. Like I carry on this massive cardboard box that shows that I keep the law. It's like this huge, weird cardboard boxes they would walk, these phylacteries. I'm a law keeper. And then he looks at them and he says, you who received the law is delivered by angels and did not keep it. Done. So you can just imagine after he laid out his entire case of how they understand it, then took the sword and turned it like 17 times over and over, saying, you're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised, you resist the Holy Spirit, you killed the prophets, you murdered God, and you don't keep the law. So how do you think their reaction would be here? Well, you know the rest of the story, so much so that they would kill him. Watch this, verse 54. This is almost comical what's going on here in verse 54 and following the way that Luke will contrast the crazy people and Stephen like it says now when they heard these things they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him I have never been so mad or had somebody so mad at me that they don't talk they just go like because I've said something but that's what they're doing not only that 
I want you to notice the picture. Not only are they physically grinding their teeth, I want you to watch this. In verse 57, they crowd aloud in a loud voice. Aah! And then watch this. They stop their ears like a three-year-old. I don't want to hear what you're saying. Aah! And then it says, they rushed at him. So like, it's like, Aah! like they just ran at him like a three-year-old, grinding their teeth and screaming. <laughs> That's them. <laughs> That's just so, like, what? This, is this a cartoon? Like, what's going on? And then juxtaposition. Like, the, the, the contrast is so funny. He has, and it's just because he has Stephen, like, belting them, belting them, belting them, on and on. Take the knife at the end. Turn it seven times. And then here he is, like, angelic Stephen. Like, they freak out and go crazy. And then he's like, but <laughs> he, and don't miss this, full of the Holy Spirit, which he said they weren't. Gazed into heaven, and don't miss this. We started out in the very beginning. The glory of God is where the presence of God is. Saw the glory of God. Luke's wanting us to understand that the presence of God is something that Stephen is fully experiencing in this moment. As all these charges have been wrong, that he is actually gazing at the glory of God and looking up. So they're freaking out. And he's standing up. Here I am, Stephen, seeing the glory of God, gazing at Jesus, standing at me. Like, so the, the, the difference between these two is remarkable, right? <clears throat> They're crazy, and he's looking into heaven. And it literally says, standing, stop. <clears throat> By the way, you'll never see a place in the Bible that says, you know, we, we always see Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Every time you look, it says seated. This is the only place in the Bible it says that he's standing. The only place. God, God himself, Jesus, is standing at the right hand of the Father, with Stephen coming to him, not sitting. Only place in the Bible, he's actually standing. Stott, Christ is standing as Stephen's heavenly advocate and welcoming his first martyr into heaven. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men and now he sees Christ standing and confessing his servant, Stephen, now before God. So this is a remarkable picture. He looks up, he sees the glory, he's filled with the spirit, he's experiencing the fullness of the glory of God and he sees the savior. And the only time the scriptures ever say that Jesus is standing, this is because Stephen, the first martyr, has, has defended his Lord and he's looking up and he sees God standing in heaven looking at Stephen. Unbelievable. And he says, and behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they were screaming and, you know, clapping their hands over their ears and rushing at him. They're crazy. Verse 58, they grab him. As this whole thing's happened, they just, you know, like tackle him, take him out. It says they cast him out of the city, presumably because they don't want to be seen with this awful sin they're about to do of killing a man. And they stoned him. One commentator, Hughes, uh, wanted to make sure we understood that the stoning process was not something that just kind of like, oh, stone you dead, let's go get some lunch. It was like to stone someone took a long time to throw them down in a pit and then throw rocks at him and miss and then throw a rock at him and barely hit him but not kill him. And everybody repeatedly, so much so, I mean, if I walk out to my mailbox, I'm sweaty and I'm, I'm winded, right? But they are so tired and so sweaty and so winded, they have to take out their outer coats and have somebody hold it for presumably hours while they go back and over and over cast rocks to kill this man. Who's holding the coats? Saul. So he's wanting us to even see Luke at the end of verse 7 in chapter 8, a huge contrast between this saintly man, Stephen, and the awful, sinful Saul. And then we get to see the, what the Lord does in, in Acts chapter 9 with Saul. Like, what a turnaround for Saul. 
All glory to God. But he's wanting us to see this contrast even as Stephen in death is falling asleep and Saul is approving of execution and death. Verse 8-1. That's actually another translation can say death. So here we have, <clears throat> they're stoning him. I'm in verse 58 in the middle. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young name as Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, here, again, all along, I said, the death of Stephen has these similar words and phrases and, and, and things that happened to Jesus. This is no different. See if you notice these things. As they were stoning Stephen, he's about to die. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In the same way in Luke twenty three forty six, where Jesus says that. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. I mean... Luke records that also in Luke 23. So in the same ways that Luke records the death of Jesus, he's recording the death of Stephen in the same ways. Remarkable. And when he said this, he fell asleep. <clears throat> so what are the, some, some of the things that we can learn from Acts chapter 7? Uh, what are some of that real life applications that we can have as we see this? Just a few things I want you to see. Number one, the presence of God is not restricted to any place. The presence of God is with us everywhere. If we're in the family of God, not because of association with the temple, but because of belief in Jesus, we have access, if you will, by the Spirit to the fullness of the presence of God all the time. You have that. On Tuesday morning, when you're fighting to, to make it to work on time in a holy way, on Friday night, when you're fighting for holiness, the fullness of the presence of God for those that are in Christ, that have trusted in Jesus as their Redeemer and Deliverer, through their 40 years, if you will, as you will, of sanctification, you have the fullness of the presence of Christ with you all the time. Even here, as we sing together as a, as a church congregation, in the CPC, the fullness of the presence of God with us. A couple other things I want you to see. One is that we can look at this and read this as a means of encouragement. God wants us to see over and over and over of Israel's history they rejected him, they rejected him, they rejected him, he was forgiving. They rejected him, he was forgiven. That the Lord is steadfast in love and forgives the iniquity and transgressions. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. They rejected him, he forgives. They rejected, they rejected. I mean, over and over, all of Israel's history, rejection, 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 exile, lose your kingdom, lose your, pay, your place, lose, lose, lose. And what does he do at the end? He sends his own son. After years of rejection to where everything was basically over and hopeless. You just look at it and you're like, well, they, they just messed that whole thing up. It's over. And what's this final thing? Not just forgiveness, but God himself in the flesh comes. This is a story of great encouragement for us. That the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love with us. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Son. That he's given us his son. And lastly, it is a word of warning for the stiff-necked people that after they heard from Stephen, the gospel, still reject it and kill him. It's a word of warning to those who would continually, continually, continually stiff-arm God. That eventually, as Romans 1 says in the end, he gives us over to our own depravity. He finally will turn away, stop convicting, stop graciously giving us conviction, graciously convicting us of guilt, and it turns us over, Romans 1, 24, 26, 28, and ultimately the rest of the chapter, 
turn us over, as it says, to the gods of Moloch and Raphan, or thinking that we can have right standing with God by the things that we do with our own hands rather than trusting in the work of Christ. So it's a warning. The Lord wants us to trust in Christ and Christ alone and not ourselves. So as we go into the Lord's Supper, this is a great time for us to remember that physically, that the Lord has given us the body, the bread, and the cup because he has given us his body broken for us and the cup representing forgiveness of sin and that we can have as a reminder, we can partake in the gospel that he has given to us through his own son coming and being our redeemer. So I'm gonna pray and then we'll go into a time of remembering the good news of the gospel in the Lord's Supper. After I pray, I'll give a few instructions and then we'll go into the time of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love and mercy. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that we can have and have access to your presence completely. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.